if we could wind the clock back 100 years, the name G.K. Chesterton would be familiar to most of us. He was an author, well-known, influential, seen by some to be quite controversial at times, a debater, a social commentator, and quite a few other things, including uh, strong views on religion. Some of the things he said we'd be in agreement with, others perhaps we wouldn't. At one time, there had been in the public press quite a prolonged discussion about many of the country's social ills and problems and deprivations. And the public were invited to write in with their own opinions as to what might be the root cause of all the trouble. Chesterton sent in a letter. It was probably the shortest letter that was submitted. So, Mr Chesterton, in your opinion, what might be the root cause of all the trouble? He wrote, Dear Sir, I am yours sincerely. Dear Sir, I am. I am the root cause of all the trouble. He was right. Three main points, three short points of application to conclude. Number one, personal responsibility. I am, said G.K. Chesterton, personal responsibility. One of the chief lessons of the Bible is that all of us are responsible for our own sins before God. And none of us can point a finger at another and try to blame them. That's the meaning of verse 2 of Ezekiel 18. The people of Israel have been using a proverb to try and excuse themselves of blame for their current predicament. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and it's the children's teeth who are set on edge. Our fathers did this and that and it's all their fault. None of this is my problem. I'm not to blame for any of this. They did it. And we are who we are simply as a consequence of them. That's what the proverb means. The children are like this through no fault of their own. Earlier generations are to blame. This has been the human heart from the beginning. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Don't blame me. Bring any, any kind of accusation or criticism against someone and you'll usually find that rather than hold up their hands in confession, they'll immediately become very defensive and they'll either deny it altogether or try and find some way to excuse and justify what they've done. Admitting blame is not our natural default position. We shy away from that. 
But God says to Israel here, I'm having none of this anymore. This proverb you're using cuts no ice with me. Who do they think they're trying to kid anyway? Time to stand up and be counted. You can forget using this proverb anymore, says God. You see, friends, when you hear preachers such as those that you will hear in this church and churches like it, or when you read the Bible for yourself and you are confronted with its message of personal sin before a holy God, it does not matter what kind of counterclaim or argument you try to use. You can come up with all kinds of alternative views and theories and philosophies. But at the end of the day, you are going to find yourself standing before God who is going to deal with you on his terms, not yours. That's the message of the Bible. Sorry to raise it. Think of the issues we've been witnessing in Westminster over the last few months. Mrs. May, it's this deal or nothing. But many of the others don't like that. And so they refuse to accept it. And they want to come up with their own view, their own deal that fits their own position. And our natural reaction is to do the same thing with God. Oh, so that's God's deal. No, not happy with that. I'll come up with my own, thank you. So when it comes to issues of righteousness versus sin, when it comes up with issues as to whether you are good or good enough, when it comes to the issue of whether God should or should not accept you, and that it's his way and his way only, many protest I don't like that deal. I refuse to accept it. I'll come up with another one, thank you. And the thing is, you see, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It actually doesn't even matter whether you accept it or not. In the end, it will make no difference at all if you've spent your whole life refusing to accept the message of the Bible. One day you'll find yourself standing before the judge of all the world and he will say to you, I'm having none of your excuses anymore. Just like he says to Israel in verse 3. No more of your excuses. Reality time. And you'll discover that God holds you accountable and responsible for your sins on his terms. In verse 4, God declares all souls belong to him. That tells us something very significant. It tells you that God created you. It tells you that God indeed formed you in the womb. It tells you that it is God indeed who has numbered all of your days. That he gives you your every breath. That the very next beat of your heart is his either to give or to withhold. 
Your soul is not your own. It is God's. He gave it to you. He it is who gives you life. He it is who will decide when your life is going to end. Your soul is his. You are his. It matters not whether you have ever acknowledged or accepted this truth. It still remains the truth. And at the end of your life, you will be made to stand before him. And if you permit the conscience that God gave you to do its work, you'll know this is the truth. And here's the basic premise of how things work with God. The soul that sins will die. Is that you? This chapter is intended to make us all realize that our position before God is very perilous indeed. But please keep listening because it concludes with a message of glorious hope. Personal responsibility, number one, before God. It's one of the main topics in Ezekiel chapter 18, along with a second, number two. You make your own choices and you decide how you will live. Now, in order to teach us these truths, Ezekiel paints a few different scenarios. In verses 5 to 13, we have a father and a son. The father lives a righteous life and there are some examples of what that might entail if you're interested to know what a good life in the eyes of God looks like. Have a read again through those verses. Things you should do and things you should refrain from doing. And he, his life is summarized at verse 9. He's walked in my statutes, God's commandments. He's walked in obedience. He's kept my judgments faithfully. He's just he shall surely live. Uh, it's interesting to note that, um, that the lists of behaviours that are found in these sections in Ezekiel 18 are very similar to those mentioned by the Apostle Paul in his letters where he gives lists of different sins that we often find ourselves being caught up in. It's also interesting to note that at verse 6, Ezekiel begins with idolatry having a wrong view of God. That's what, that's what he starts with. Setting up gods which are of our own invention. Having a heart that is out of step and out of touch with God and simply doing its own thing. Therein lies the fundamental of sin. But that's not this man who's painted in those opening verses and God's declaration about him, he shall live, live the righteous life. But then this man has a son, and the son does the exact opposite of the father. Again, a few examples are given. Notice that each of these things are described as an abomination before God. And also notice that even if he's guilty only of one of them, verse 13, 
that will still bring God's certain judgment on him. Is God going to blame the father for the life of the son? No. Not in terms of guilt. Will God judge the father on account of his wicked son? No. Will God overlook the sins of the son on account of his righteous father? No. Because each of us are personally responsible before God for our sins. Now, as the chapter moves on from verse 14, that wicked son now has a son of his own. So what we've actually got now is we started with father and son. Now we've got grandfather, father and, and grandson. So the wicked son has his own son. But despite the dreadful example and legacy that his father has given him, that boy is not like his father at all. In fact, he's like his granddad. Back in verse, verses 5 to 9. And God's declaration about this son, he will live. And there's a very simple and easy to understand conclusion to this section. Verses 19 and 20. The son does not bear the guilt of the father. The son's done what is lawful and right. He's kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on himself or herself. And the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself or herself. Two particular truths come from this section. And actually they challenge modern thinking in a number of ways. Modern godless thinking anyway. In fact they don't just challenge it, they confront it head on. It's a head on collision with modern day thinking. First... When people do wrong things, it is sin. Number one. It's not just being a bit naughty. It's sin. It is God who holds out the moral standard for the world. And to transgress them is sin. Which means that it isn't just an offence against a fellow man or woman it is more importantly and far more substantially a sin against God. It's an offence against God. And that's why it brings you under his judgment and condemnation. Secondly, there is no guarantee that a good example will produce a good second generation. And it is not a foregone conclusion that a bad example must bring a bad second generation. Now the world will tell you, oh, well, look, you see, bad is going to breed bad, is going to breed bad, is going to breed bad. Not the case, says the Bible. Not the case. A good father can have a bad son and a bad father can have a good son. And God deals with us all individually as he finds and judges us. And a bad son 
who had a good father only has himself to blame. A son who has a bad father, if he turns out just like his father, he can't blame his father. Why? Because he knows his father was a bad example. And he still chose to follow him. You see, you choose things. If you see a bad example and you become like that example, it's because you've chosen to. People will argue against that, but that's the truth of it. You've chosen to follow that bad example because your own conscience tells you that's a bad example. You do it anyway. And so God will hold you accountable for the bad choice you've made. But what this passage also shows us very clearly is that a son with a bad father can choose the good. Because he can. God holds each of us personally accountable for the choices that we make. Because they are all choices. What kind of choices are you making? What kind of choices will you make? What kind of example will you be? Lots to consider here. Number three. It's who and what you are today that matters. It's who and what you are today that matters. Now here's a third topic then to get your head around. Verses 21 and 24. First of all, there's a wicked man or woman who turns from their sins to righteousness they will not now die. They will live. Second, here's a righteous man or woman who turns to wickedness and remains there. They now will die despite their previous goodness. Now here are some important things to think about and think these through very carefully from those verses. From a worldly perspective, in those two cases, they both could have done an equal amount of good from a worldly point of view, yet one will die and one will live. Because it's who and what you are today that matters. From a worldly perspective, the one who finishes in wickedness over the course of their life could have done more good than the other one. But the one who's done more good from a worldly perspective is still the one who's going to die. And the one who's done the least amount of good is the one who's going to live. Think about the thief on the cross next to Christ. His whole life had been of wickedness. He was a guilty thief and murderer. And 
minutes before he dies. He's living and he's going to live in paradise. What good has he done? From a worldly perspective, what good has he done? None. And yet he lives. Because it's who and what you are today that matters. It's who and what you are right now that matters. So how is this fair? Well, that's what Israel wanted to know. How's this fair? The problem is, you see, in our twisted sinful thinking, being good or bad, how God assesses our condition is not how most of us think it should be. We like to think that what God does is put our good on this side of the balance scale and put our bad on that side of the balance scale and as long as the good outweighs the bad, everything's fine. And that's it. So whether you start well and finish poorly or whether you start poorly and finish well, irrelevant, good, bad, which is the greater, there you go. But that's not how it works with God. That's not how it is. Look at verse 27 of Ezekiel 18. When a wicked man or woman turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Repentance from sin will save you in Christ. Sin is recognized, sin is acknowledged, sin is confessed, sin is turned away from, which is what repentance is, and he has life. The other person in those verses, they have had all the blessings of knowing and doing what is right and good. And then choose to turn their back on it and willfully pursue wickedness instead and against the better judgment of their own conscience and they continue in it and they will die. Now that's the position that Israel are in right now. They know better. So many spiritual blessings have been theirs. So much knowledge that they have of God and his word. And yet they persist in their sin. And they've chosen to. They've turned their back on God. And they persist in unrighteousness. It's who and what you are today that matters. Where are you right now? The Lord may require your soul of you. It's his. He may do it tonight on the way home. He may do it while you sleep in your bed. He may do it on your way to school tomorrow morning. It's who and what you are now that matters. That's what will decide where you go when you die. Three short points of application before we close. 
Number one, let's ask a question. Where does God stand in all of this? Verses 22 and verses 23 and 33 could not be clearer. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. Verse 32, I beg your pardon. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Couldn't be any clearer where God stands in all of this. It grieves his heart over one sinner who has to die because of their sins. Will you not turn and live while grace is still open to you? Number two, the call to repentance is still being made. Despite everything that's been said, despite the judgment and the condemnation, despite God's great displeasure, still he holds out grace. Verse 30 and 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. But look, repent, turn, there's still time. Turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. This is the heart of God for his people. Still a heart of God today. Turn to me. There is forgiveness. There is grace. Come to me. Still time to repent. Right now there is. There's no reason why anyone here should not hear, heed God's message and go home from this place this evening saved and secure in Christ. It's where you are and who you are and what you are now that matters. God is such a loving, merciful God. He is slow to anger. He is so long-suffering towards stubborn sinners. He is so full of grace and mercy. And despite the judgment that hangs over you, yet you may still repent and turn and live. That's the glorious message of the gospel. Number three. But how can I become righteous? We've read about these who in, apparently are righteous but some of you who know other parts of the Bible may have noticed that there seems to be a bit of a problem in all of this because the Bible states very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, that actually there are none who are righteous and there are none who do good. So how can any of us ever be like the man in verses 5 to 9? How can any of us ever be like that? How can any of us be just in God's eyes? How can any of us be seen as those who are doing what is lawful and right in the eyes of God? If all have sinned and there is no righteous and righteousness anywhere. How can God look at any of us and judge that we have walked in his statutes, 
and kept his judgments faithfully. But it's all answered for us in the chapter at verses 30 and 31. First, you must repent. Acknowledge and confess your sin. And as it says in verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed. That's what repentance is. I am done with it. And I'm turning to the Lord. That's repentance. I'm done with it. Away with it. Turning away from sin to follow another. And get yourselves, get yourself, verse 31, a new heart and a new spirit. How? Where from? Well, God himself provides this for us by his grace. This is precisely what David pleads for in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Exactly the same words used here in verse 31. You need a new heart and a new spirit. Later in this book of Ezekiel, it is God who declares he will remove your old heart. and He will give you the new one. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. And it's exactly what we've been thinking about on Sunday mornings in terms of what we receive by our being united to the Lord Jesus Christ so that his death is counted by God as being my death and his righteousness is counted as being mine. Because he did live a just life, didn't he? He did walk in God's statutes. He did walk faithfully and keep all of God's commandments. He is the man in verses 5 to 9. Only he is, actually. And his righteousness becomes yours. And the sinner is made righteous. And here is the message of the whole Bible. I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's why Jesus came, that you might have this, all fulfilled by Christ for you. It's there for the taking, and it's who and what you are tonight that matters.